This is Sophia Cassiola. And this is Michael J. Epstein. Of Blood of the Trivets. And you're listening to... Without Your Head. Dun, dun, dun. Facebook without without your head station decapitation. I'm Nasty Neil, and I'm with all the good people here of Echoes of Fear. We have the directors, Low, Evanet Bradley, Brian Evanet Bradley is the director and writer. Trista Robinson, wave the hello. Hi. <laughs> Alif Salvas, the entity. Ooh. Scared. <laughs> And Benedict Bryden, the composer. That's very cool, though, the composer here. Hi, everybody. Yeah. So first of all, Echoes of Fear, I got to see on the um, at the festival scene before it you know, went to Video on Demand, and, uh, and now it's on Blu-ray, which you can get the autographed Blu-ray over on the Dark Delicacies website. This is very exciting. Yeah. How did the, yes. When did you first decide, like, uh, think of the story, we're going we're gonna to make this movie? Well, you know, it, it, it's weird. It's like, we actually started, the story started coming about before our previous film, Malignant. We, uh, we actually bought this house and we moved into it. And within the first year, all these kind of like weird, spooky, scary things happened in the house. Uh, and I kind of jotted them all down and, and we talked about it. But we went on to make Malignant instead because I didn't know what the story was. I just had this like interesting first act, but I didn't know where the story went. Um, and then we came across two other um, true stories uh, and realized that we could take those events, combine it with our real experiences in the house, and make it a story. And uh, I'm assuming everyone's already watched the movie, or if you haven't, watch it and then come back and watch the podcast. But basically, right. the other two true stories uh, was there's um, our area where we live in Eagle Rock slash Highland Park here in Los Angeles, California, um, actually was the site of where there's some murders from the Hillside um, Stranglers, uh, which turned out to be the, I mean, Hillside Strangler, which they later learned was actually Hillside Stranglers because they were serial killer cousins, which sounds like a really bad sitcom. They're cousins. And then the other thing we learned, yeah. And then the other thing we learned about was what's called the Ghost Rapes of Bolivia, where it basically dealt with these people who were gassing people in their homes and they weren't killing them, but they were raping them at night. And the people would wake up the next day and not realize what had happened, but they had memories of, you know, they could tell that they had been assaulted and they had these horrible kind of memories like dreams of the event and everyone was calling them ghost rapes. And it actually took them years to figure out what was going on. So that true event, the serial killer 
true events, which some of it happened in our area, including the Night Stalker actually has a victim near here as well, combined with a traditional ghost story in a haunted house, which is kind of what we had actually experienced here in the South. So, so that was helpful yeah. to combine, you know, the experiences to make it more interesting, to make the story fuller. Yeah. So once we realized how to blend those together, that's really where the movie came about. And then it was just a matter of like doing the scripts and finding the cast and the great crew and, and you know, figuring out how to execute it. Yeah. What made Trista right for the role of Alyssa? Tristan should answer that. That's right. Well, we we, we, uh, had worked with Trista on Malignant, and she had a very, very small part, but that she was really amazing in in that small part. And we were like, oh, uh, we need to work with Trista again because she can do, like, some incredible stuff. So, so basically, we thought first of she's she has a very big range, and she could carry the arc of her character through all these different ways mm-hmm. in echoes. And uh, so, anyway, she she uh, we approached her to see if she'd be interested. So basically, we we wrote the part thinking of her, and then we started auditioning Trista without telling her we wrote the part for her. Right. Because we didn't want to, like, we didn't, you know, we wanted, you know, to make sure that our instincts were right. Uh, and from the audition process, we were like, yes, absolutely, she could do this role like we thought she could. And it's so critical because basically we see everything through her eyes. So the audience isn't connected with her character and empathetic with her character and following her in the journey solving the mystery, the movie doesn't work. So she's, it's like, I mean, there are lead roles and then there are lead roles. And this is like one of those movies where like she's in almost every scene. Mm-hmm. So it's like so important um, for the audience to go along with her journey. What, what interested you about the role of Trista? Um, well, thank you guys um, for um, letting me have Alyssa um, and saying those nice things. Um, uh, I, I, I'm a horror fan, as you know, I'm treacherous, Trista, and, um, so, but I read a lot of scripts, and I watch a, horror mo- a lot of horror movies, and I hadn't, um, read anything like this, I thought it was very unpredictable, I thought it was very challenging, I, I like, um, arcs, so, um, this, uh, character, as well as the story, in and of itself, have, have, um, big arcs. Um, also I, as Brian Lowe said, I had worked with them previously, so I was very excited to work with them again. Yeah. Now, Alif, did you, Alif, did you know, uh, Lowe and Brian before? Yes. I've been friends with them for a long time. I know them. I know their work before this one. I know them very well. So now, what, you ever, what, yeah, go on, sorry. Well, what's interesting about Elif is, um, she started doing this physical theater, uh, at Zombie Joe's, and we had never seen her, you know, perform like this before. So we started seeing some of her shows, going to check her out, and then when we started working on the um, on the story, I kept thinking of Elif. I was like, I think Elif to totally be this ghost. There's something about her. I don't know. I know we. You know, she hadn't done a lot of features at that time. It was mainly more theater, but I was like, I felt like she, she can just, there's something, you know, she can bring to the movie. And she did, you know, she did an amazing job. 
Well, it's interesting because the character is a ghost, so it's scary on one 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 level, but it's also not it's not really a, 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 an evil character. So is that uh, hard to play where you're both, you know, you have to be scary on, uh, at some part, but you're also the character is actually, you know, not an evil being? Uh, yeah. I, I, I think a ghost being either evil or being uh, helpless and uh, looking for answers, those are big cliches. In this character, it is not a cliched entity. It, it, it has its own personality. It's not evilish, or it is not this or that. It's almost like a human. Like it's more complicated than just being a ghost. She's not a ghost. She's a person who was killed that turned into a ghost. She's not like a Walmart ghost. You know, like you would mm -hmm. pick one character and here is your <laughs> classic ghost. She's yeah. not that. Yeah. Now, uh, how about the makeup? Was uh, how do you ever? done a lot of makeup before i i mean that's we had an amazing makeup artist for that and uh she had the greatest patience and uh she's great talented and what makes the difference between that kind of a person putting your makeup on versus anybody else is that uh, she's in such a good mood all the time and so <laughs> positive no matter how many hours you're sitting there it doesn't matter you you adore her work and you don't mind being there for like eight hours, ten hours. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's it's a, it's a very positive feeling. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I have had makeup on my face many times because I do live theater. But this has been a movie. We could afford uh, more detailed makeup, and she's an amazing artist. Really, really dedicated with his with her work. Uh, so it it was a great experience. Mm -hmm. No, uh, Bennett. Yeah, uh, uh, oh, sorry, Brian. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say her. Her name's uh, Renee Goodhue, and uh, we had met her. But she did the special effects makeup on a previous film, *Malignant*, as well. And um, what Alif was saying about face makeup. I mean, basically, we had some nights. Uh, one night in particular, where Alif was in her uh, full body makeup that Renee actually applied. So Alif had to go through like the full makeup application, which took a long time. And then she had to do the full shoot with it. Uh, and we knew that that was a really big makeup. So we actually had scheduled like almost all the full body uh, versions of, of her entity would be shot that night. So it was a very long night, uh, with, especially after that, you know, very long makeup yeah. application. So Alif was a real, not only did she give a great performance, but she was a real trooper uh, to be able to like not only go through the makeup process, but then also keep the energy and get the performance as well. So great. How job. about the actual look of the entity? Did, were you guys hands on on that or was uh, the makeup artist, was that his uh, design? Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically uh, I talked with Renee about it and I basically, you know, did a search and kind of found um, different things I liked. Like I like the texture of this. I like kind of the look of the eyes here. I like the blackness of the mouth. I kind of like, you know, the coloring of this. And then we did some makeup tests with Elite. So we actually did some tests of the makeup and, um, you know, came up with what the color should look like in a particular texture that I really like that looked really great with Lowe's cinematography and lighting. But the trick of that texture is it's really meticulous to put on. Because we had a discussion about 
whether we would make more of a costume that she could actually put on. But I re we really wanted the makeup to be very close to her skin so you could see Elise's performance. So it was directly applied. And because of that, it was a very long process. It wasn't like a mask or anything like that. There were some pieces that went on, but so much of it was actually applied like when we shot, like right onto the skin itself. And it's very detailed with the little openings in the skin. It's very de yeah. uh, detailed makeup. It was, it was almost like a sculpture on, on my own body. And uh, of course, I had to stand up for it because it's my back, my front, everything was completely <laughs> done. Everything took hours and it was a piece of art. Like you turn into a piece of art. You're never going to complain about, oh, I need to use the bathroom or I need to sit because it's, you're, you're turning into this glorious thing that she has in her mind. So, I mean, I had a great time. Yeah. Once you saw yourself in the full makeup, did that put you in a different you know, mindset of how you're going to play the character? Yes. <laughs> well, wait, 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 Elif, Elif, could you even see yourself in the full makeup? Mm. Because it, didn't the contacts go in earlier? Yeah. Could you so even what, see yourself? So what happened is I had these milky contact lenses, which during the shoot turned completely red. So I, I really did not see myself. So you have to feel yourself from within. But the makeup being so tight on your skin helps you feel that um, frustration of the ghost a little bit. You know, it's not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that actually puts it, like, this, this is not a ghost that is just having a field time, you know, like, just going, ooh. It is, it is trying to connect with yeah. her, with, with, with somebody, trying to tell something. She's in urgency so everything being so tight on your face and body and you being uncomfortable probably it added to my acting i should say yeah <laughs> well i mean going to what you were saying earlier neil about her being uh you know a good ghost or an evil ghost one of the thing or entity one of the things we really wanted to do was make people not be sure about that in the beginning mm -hmm. because her character leaves character the entity we find out later that that entity is wanting something, but the way she goes about trying to communicate is such a violent um, act because she's in such pain and torment because of what's happened to her that in the beginning you can read it, and hopefully I think the audience does read it in the beginning as being more of an evil entity ghost because so often ghosts now in movies, they become these like demon ghosts where like people are kind of almost programmed now that ghosts are evil. Mm -hmm. So we kind of wanted to play off that in the script where you would be thinking like, oh, maybe this is one of those demon ghosts that's an evil ghost. And then, of course, as it goes on, it becomes a more traditional ghost, you realize, where the ghost is wanting something, but it's trying to communicate the only way it can, which comes across as very violent. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and I think Elif did a great job playing that, which yeah. you kind of see that other side of her later in the movie, mm -hmm. when she's able to finally make connections. You get to see that other part of her performance. Yeah. What were those scenes like to act, act in, uh, Trista, when you're communicating with the entity? Well, Leaf is very scary. You know, <laughs> what she wants to be because she's uh -huh. right. a good actress. Mm -hmm. So, similar to what she was saying about the makeup sort of lending itself to her performance, a lot of times they say acting is reacting, you know, and Leaf just made it very easy. 
Now you, you uh, yourself uh, are into ghost hunting or, or supernatural. So, um, well, first of all, did you actually do that at, at Brian and, and Lowe's house? Did you search for the ghosts that they had? No, that's a good question. I, <laughs> I, while we're shooting, you know, we're, um, we're too busy working, you know, sure. and, and I'm very focused, but I, I am a good friend and uh, collaborator of Brian and Lowe's. So I stay there a lot of the time and I stay in Alyssa's room and I'm always a little too scared. I ha- <laughs> they have a nightlight for me. So, oh, really? uh, All right. yeah, I'm not well, that's so nice of them. Yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. No, you well, actually uh, on the, uh, on the Blu-ray, we actually put uh, uh, Trista's there, Benedict's there, Elite's there, um, Hannah, uh, the, the co-female lead. They actually came back to the house and we did like this 55 minute behind the scenes extra where we kind of go through things. And we kind of talked about the experiences that we had in the house that inspired the movie to begin with. And as I talked in that, um, was about the female entity, dark form, the almost like a dark shadow shape um, that I've experienced. But I thought everything had gone back to complete normality. And I was really excited about that. Even though we're quarantining right now, I'm like, nothing has happened. Great. Uh, the other night, and uh, Lo can attest to this. Um, Maybe I could play. Yeah, I, I could play the audio. No, don't play the audio. From the outside <laughs> security camera, you can hear Brian. Yeah, I basically screamed my head off because I woke up and there was a shape by the bed, but for the first time, it wasn't a female shape. It was like a really large. I guess I knew it was a a, a, a man or a per. I mean, at least I have masculine is what you think about. But it's like it was very large and huge shoulders, but all black. You couldn't even see the arms. It was like a shape of a head, and then the shoulders come down. And then I'm like screaming my head off. And then I look this way, and then there's another one like at the foot of the bed. And uh, that was the first time I'd seen that, and that was that was bad. I, I that no. was a bad one. I don't want to know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to know. I actually I never told her what I saw because she never wants. She never wants to hear. I it. You have to get an extra nightlight next time Trista comes over. I know. Every time I'm there, they're like, "Don't worry, there's nothing." And then I hear stories like this. I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I what's it? What is the greatest thing about them all? Trista and Brian and Lawrence is they've been doing horror for a long time, mm-hmm. yet they can be spooked very easily. <laughs> and, and I That's love that because, yeah, yeah, I love that they're not like, ah, I've been there, done that, blood, <laughs> schmutz, whatever. Like, uh-huh. they're not like that. They're really fresh. Yeah. So they're literally living every moment of it, which is adorable. And so much fun to work with. I think Trista's screaming her head off a lot. <laughs> Made lots of shooting, lots of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, Benedict. I'm sorry, what you saying? Yeah, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yes. I would like to hear that. It's not a good scream. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It's coming. It's building the tension here. Did you hear? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's outside. It's a horrible screen. We will be looping that. We'll be looping that in post and replacing it with a much better screen. That's from outside audio. But no, but what, what happens is like you, 
you, you, you just, you're just time. in this panic state. You're just in this absolute horror panic state. And honestly, it's weird because I got used to the female shapes. So mm -hmm. it's like, I would see the female shape. It's like, oh, there's the female shape sitting on the foot of the bed. Okay. You know, and you'd look at it for a while. Like, okay, everything's cool. So I don't know if this is like a new stage because whoever, whoever puppeteers this stuff is like, well, that one's not working anymore. <laughs> Send in the big guy. Because it was like completely different. Uh -huh. It was like completely different. I wasn't ready for that. It was different. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're setting up for the sequel. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, know. <laughs> so, uh, Benedict, how did you get involved? Well, you know, I started working with uh, um, Brian and Lowe about 12 years ago on a movie they did called Dark Remains, which is also a, you know, ghost <laughs> story. And so we kicked it off and, and we got along and stayed friends. And, uh, you know, uh, Brian contacted me again about this movie. And, and of course, I, I love that genre. Uh, I'm a violinist myself, and I, when I was a student back home in Germany, I actually played violin on Christopher Young's Hide on the House uh, score, and I'm a big fan of the Hellraiser scores and all those classics, right? So, yeah, so I just uh, worked with Brian and Lowe, and Brian is very specific. He knows exactly what he wants, right, in, in one way or another, and uh, it's, it's all about finding the right tone and the atmosphere, and uh, it's like an invisible actor. That's what scoring is, right? Mm -hmm. So we are there. We are running around behind the scenes. Sometimes we make a little more noise, sometimes not too much. And so we've been working hands-on on this. And I've done stuff I usually don't do. I like melodies. I like piano, violin, strings. I hope uh, Brian does a romantic comedy next so I can do something <laughs> But it has been a great time. <laughs> do you see the finished movie before you do the score? Well, you know, we start with a rough cut usually. I mean, I read the script sometimes, but the mm -hmm. script can be misleading because then in my mind, I start making up scenes and, and things. And later I look at it and say, wait a minute, this is blue or this is at the, you know. So I, I want to see a movie. I want to see the pasting. And so Brian shows me a rough cut pretty much that is pretty close what he wants to do. And what, he's one of the rare directors, I got to mention, who does not put in some temporary music. It's rare because most people nowadays with the editor put in some stuff already to test. And when you as a composer get that, you're like, okay, that works. That's interesting. Brian gives me like uh, a blank movie just to get an impression. And, and no, seriously, that's a rare thing. You don't get that many times nowadays. So. Do you prefer that? And, 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 and there's, a, there, there's a reason for that. Because yeah. uh, I, I edited the movie as well. And what I've learned um, as an editor, because I edit TV stuff as well, is basically if you um, put a temp score on something and then you listen to it three or four times, that's all it takes, with that temp score, anything that's not that piece of music is not going to sound right to you anymore. Something happens when you watch an image married with the sound and you see it three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, your brain connects the two. And what happens a lot of times if you start with the temp score, you get used to the temp score. And then when you give it to the composer, you basically are psychologically forcing the composer to basically mimic the temp score. So you're eliminating the composer's ability to bring something original and creative to the table because you've limited him that way. So what I find is, number one, the other thing is, if you edit everything without any music on it, it really makes you fine tune the edit and the pacing of the picture and the flow of the movie. 
because it, lots of times you could have a scene that's not that good yet in terms of editing. Maybe it's not refined, but you put a piece of music on it and you're watching, oh, that's fine. Oh, that, that works. But the key is, can you make the edit work with no music whatsoever? Can you make the scenes flow in and out of each other and the pace and the rhythms work with no music? And then when I get to see Benedict start putting music on it, it's like, oh, it's like, it's this wonderful experience because then it just is coming alive to this new level. And yeah. I love that part. Did your editing ever uh, change depending on the score? Since it's a rough cut? I, I, I tend to, um, this is why I don't use um, needle drop music. Uh, I, I tend to really lock the pitcher. That's how we've always done it. Uh, I mean, I take a long time to lock the pitcher. I mean, it's not like a quick lock. I mean, we'll do an edit. It'll sit for a while. We'll do a, a rough cut, a fine cut, fine cut two, a lock cut, lock cut two, lock cut three, lock cut four. You know, we'll keep refining the edit before the score. And um, sometimes before, you know, those final, final edits, I'll let Benedict get started. But I find, I find it's best for me to have the movie flow and tell the story the way it wants visually first and have the music. Uh, and that's, I mean, Benedict, you should talk about this, but to me, that's the real impressive thing that a composer, a scorer does of a, of a movie as opposed to writing songs. A true composer like Benedict is able to ride his cues and transition and bring you from scene to scene so it becomes like a nice flow. And if you were just, uh, you know, doing the music first, you may not get that. By him doing the music second, he's like basically weaving perfectly the movie together. So hopefully when you watch the movie, you don't even think about the music, which is what to me, that's what a really great score is. Is like you're watching the movie and you're in the movie and you're not even thinking like, oh, that's a great score. Because if you're doing that, something's probably wrong, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're listening to it that way. But Benedict, you should talk about that. No, no, you're absolutely right. I keep, I keep it short. That, uh, we have to deal with temp tracks all the time because it adds comfort to the producers and to the studios, right? They spend a lot of money on the big pictures. So when they edit and it's working already, with some temp score, they feel very secure. But then what Brian said, it comes to the composer. And then the composer has a problem because, again, he has a score and they put in Star Wars and then you have to imitate that. How can you, right? So you want to be original, for instance, right? Uh, I think composers, we do both. We adjust to the picture. That's our job, right? Sometimes when the music itself, like in animation, is so well done or it flows in a certain way, the animators might change the animation to that, to make it happen. Also, when you watch E.T., the most famous scene is the flying bicycle scene, right? And John Williams wrote a very melodic moment, right? We all know how that goes with, with the melodies. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steven Spielberg actually cut out like five seconds for an edit. And they had to cut the music out. And they said, you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't flow in the music anymore if we cut that out. So actually Spielberg made an adjustment <laughs> to the music because he loved it so much the way the music went. Mm -hmm. But those are exceptions. In general, I like working when the picture is done, hopefully, so I can actually make those transitions smooth and as elegant. But musical, as we know, there are forms, also music and phrases. And I want to keep them in, but that's my job mm -hmm. to, to make them fit. Yeah. Uh, I know Leif mentioned that the, the movies doesn't like do a lot of like uh, cliches that you see in, in a lot of uh, ghost movies or whatever. And one of the things I like is that the, uh, the two uh, characters like uh, right away, they pretty much just go with that. This is a ghost. You don't have like half the movie where they're, you know, debating, is this a ghost or is this our imagination, which I've seen a million times and like, right. you know, I don't need to see again. 
Uh, so uh, I assume that was intentional. And uh, is there any story with the uh, with the with the uh, glass like uh, stone that's in the movie that's given to the uh, friend to Elise? There it is. Boy, Elise can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah Elise, you know all about. <laughs> yeah, that is a uh, Eastern Mediterranean culture. Also in Italy too, it goes all the way to Spain. Uh, it's called an evil eye. Uh, it is blue. It looks like an eye. And uh, the belief is that uh, too much attention, positive or negative, jealousy or yearning of another person will bring you bad luck, even if they, that person uh, wants it for good intentions. So you put that on your shirt or on your body or in your house to uh, attract that uh, energy into that. So that's what an evil eye is. Lots of children wear it. Uh, I have it in the house. Some people in their cars will have it. And uh, I find that what is interesting, most interesting, is that even a good, good energy can hurt you because it is causing mm. so much jealousy around in the universe. So it's, it's a kind of like an interesting thing which they have now. I mean, Trista well, has it, yeah. right? Yeah, Trista has it. Yeah. So, we so have how, ours too. Yeah. We, we have ours as well. Well, we, we, we liked it because um, Elif actually gave one to us as a gift before. So we were like, this is kind of cool. Oh, yeah, she gave it to us. <laughs> and, and then it, 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 it fell and broke. And I freaked out. So I'm like contacting Elif. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? It broke. Are we in trouble? Because the you know the evil eye broke, and Leaf can talk about that. Yeah, but it's when it breaks, it means that it did its job. So there was some kind of an energy around them, and then evil eye somehow just took it in to itself and broke. So it's it's not actually a bad thing. It's like it did what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. So was that in the original script, or was this something you added? Uh, because you know Elise. well I mean it was something that we were um, toying with in the original script but after we put together the first rough cut we actually wanted to draw out um, we actually did some um, private screenings with um, some other filmmakers whose opinions I really trust and can watch a real rough cut because mm -hmm. most people can't uh, it's very difficult to watch a real rough cut especially with no score and one of the things that people were talking about was they wanted to bring out a little bit more of uh, Hannah uh, Race's character, Steph, to understand a little bit earlier her connection kind of with, you know, uh, like you said, that they go with it right away. Part of the reason they go with it right away is her character because she's kind of into like, oh yeah, ghosts and spirits and karma and that kind of thing. So they wanted to know that about her character right away. So we actually added the scene with her giving her the Narzalek. Uh, later, oh, and, added, the and then at the same time, yeah. we wanted to bring it back so we wrote in the scene with it breaking because it happens at a very key part in the movie where the movie takes its turn. And I'm like, well, that's perfect. We can harken back to that Narzalek and the breaking based on what Alif had told us about, about the energy and all that is like, it's a great way of kind of signifying that we're moving into something else now. So a lot of things that Alif gave us actually worked its way in the movie. The, the little box which held the fingernail clippings, uh, that's something Alif gave us. <laughs> You see, I'm like putting my energy into their movie. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I also like there's not like a ton of exposition of what things are because I can, you know, that's always annoying. I think in a movie, it's just it's there, and you know, 
the characters aren't just explaining it for five minutes, like what the stone is or yeah. anything. Yeah, it's well, like an want, Easter we, egg, almost like if you want to yeah, know, know about, about it, it you yeah. can go ahead and check and Google or whatever, but you don't have to. Right, and it doesn't affect, you know, you still know what's going on in the movie okay. either way. Yeah. Even if you don't know exactly what it is, I think you still kind of subconsciously pick up what right. it's doing in a story device, even if you don't know exactly what it is name-wise. But that's what, something that Lo and I work really hard on. You want to talk about that was like trying to tell the story visually without a lot of dialogue. Yeah. That's something that was very important. Well, yeah, I mean, she wanted to go into that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we really broke down. I broke down the whole story so how can visually we can move the story along and how we can help some stuff. So it was, we divided, I kind of broke up the whole script into moments and how these moments can be expressed. Like sometimes in the script, maybe it was night, and I was like, yeah, I don't think we, we should be night yet there. So we would change a few things in the script just to keep that lighting um, flowing mm -hmm. and, and the movement. Well, you change, that's the thing is like, even if we went back to the same environment, you always work on having a different lighting or different look or different style of shooting. Yeah, I, I didn't want, we, we've done other movies uh, before where we've learned through We've learned, I guess, different things. And one of the, one of the things I, I like to do is if I go back to this dining room, for example, well, I like it to be from a different area, from a different angle, so we see something else. Okay, different light. So people feel like they're discovering something new and they ha they've been there, but they're finding some kind of surprise. So uh, we, we worked hard on that. Well, devising, because yeah. uh, we had to come back to some areas a bunch of times sometimes right and that's one of the reasons that's where a lot of the things would get worked into the script and would inform me as a writer like that's how things come into being like the lantern like going okay we've done enough with flashlights with iphone flashlights we've done that look uh so now we're going to bring in a lantern so we can change the whole look and feel of how you're lighting yourself in a dark place at night uh and a lot of that's from from yeah from low wanting to like change the light the candle with the candle and all those things. So. Yeah, we just try different things. So it's changing. It changes and then it takes it it people have a different feel. They feel they feel the movie differently with the different scenarios. But it's also how you how you devise the style of shooting with it yeah. with the uh, mobile uh, gimbal stuff versus the handheld stuff later when things get more I mean if you want to talk about Yeah, so I mean we, we got and sometimes we would add a little more movement with the gimbal, just slight little movements. Or, well, there's a lot of movements. Or a lot of, yeah. But they're like, sometimes it's big, like running up the stairs, like full speed, or, um, or what else? What did we or do? Really a lot of handheld, like slight handheld. I mean, that was a big thing. Uh, Dollies. We've always done the movies together, but this is the first one that we co-directed. And one of the things that Lo really wanted was, I tend to like kind of zero in on the, uh, on the, uh, scare moments and uh, the suspense moments. I get really big into that. And then I'm like, okay, well, this is dialogue. We got to shoot this quick so I can spend more time on that. And Lowe was very much in this movie. He's like, no, the little dialogue sections need to have the same kind of flow and mood and feel as the suspense scary section. So that was something that you were yeah. very adamant about. I felt like that was a pretty good compliment. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yay, Lowe. <laughs> 
So I've actually been on, <laughs> on a movie set with Tristan. I know she's a very physical actor. Uh, was this movie very physical? Because you're in the basement. Yeah, for me, it was yeah. very physical. Yeah, obviously, I did all that stuff myself. And um, I like that. I like being physical, similar to what um, Alif was saying. I, I think um, those sorts of things really um, contribute to your performance. You know, if you're really doing it, you're going to have some real reactions. So, um I love doing it. And obviously when you're shooting, you're doing it a lot of times. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I, now that you say it, it's funny, I miss it. I miss the, they felt hard. They felt really grueling sometimes, but I, I miss it. It was a lot of fun. I like yeah. doing it. Yeah. And Alif, I mean, uh, your characters all going up and down steps and on all four stuff. So was it a physically demanding role? Uh, yes. You know, what it comes to it is that they trusted me and I trusted them. Meaning that some things maybe you wouldn't uh, ask other actors to do because they might be scared or they might complain about it or they might have an attitude like, I don't want to run up that fast and it's going to hurt my pinky and what if I fall and... (laughs) And thankfully, they really 100% trusted me. They said, do you want to do this? Yes. Uh, You sure? Yes. Let's go for it. So there was not much drama happening, which makes it all a big pleasure. I mean, I don't remember anything that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. It was all lots of fun. It was in my capabilities. And uh, we were always like, could, could we? Eh, yeah, let's try it. So we did it. It's, uh, it's, it's the teamwork, you know. So I can't really tell you that it was physically demanding because we want to do something and it right. didn't matter. Yeah. yeah. If it was physically demanding or what. It's, it's not, you're not even thinking of that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if you're in Los Angeles, go see Leaf in one of these close proximity theater pieces she does. And you will just, I, I can't watch them because I'm so scared she's going to hurt herself. <laughs> I mean, what she does, I mean, and she does this night after night after night. It's not like in a movie where you just do it one time, maybe one is a safety and you're done. She'll do this night after night after night, this really physical performance. And it's just, it's almost for me terrifying to watch because I know Elise and I'm scared she's going to get hurt. Well, but uh, it's, I, it's, I, it's, I it's amazing. Yeah, I, I think last time I broke two two teeth here, two of them. Yeah, you unfortunately. Did? Yeah, and uh, broke a toe. But it's like I don't, <gasps> I don't care. Now to clarify, that that's the theater, not the movie. <laughs> it's not our movie. That's the theater. <laughs> yeah, they're very fearless. These are very fearless people. Mm-hmm. Apparently, yeah, they really are. Except for you know Brian screaming, but. <laughs> I think that's what makes Brian so special that he is still able to scream instead of just being like the same old same old you know yeah, but, but if I auditioned that scream it would be like next wouldn't go anywhere the scream king Brian <laughs> maybe if I was in a horror you know what if I was in a horror comedy that would be a great script. Horror <laughs> comedy, maybe. Uh-huh. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. 
I also like that uh, the entity and like the, the the jump scares would normally would you'd see it and then it would disappear and that would be the end of it for you know the next twenty minutes or something. Uh, you stick with the uh, with the entity, so you see the you see it if you jump and then it keeps going. And I remember when when I saw it for the first time in the theater, it really affected the audience, which was was an awesome time to see it in the theater. Uh, Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival. You know, it was all, all the. I mean, we played in like eighteen festivals around the world, and uh, the, the, we tried to get to like six or seven of the screenings in person at least. And uh, it was just always amazing to watch the uh, audience reactions. And even though the movie was done at that point, I was still in the back, standing up, making notes for the future. So it was like very interesting to see like what works and how people react. Yeah, but. It, you have to be careful with that because... I, I'm in the back. No, <laughs> no <laughs> because some areas of the country mm. react differently. Yes. So you can't, you can't think that, okay, maybe, you know, right. in the East Coast or right. Southeast, it's people are reacting this way, and then on the West Coast, it's just different. But the big, the big scary moments, though, pretty much transferred pretty much over across the board. What was interesting was watching with the festival audience is I, you know, we tried to do a lot of surprises and there weren't necessarily scares in my brain. They're more like a surprise just to, so you wouldn't know what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And in some audiences would like freak out even bigger at something that I didn't even think of as being scary. And they were like freaked out maybe because we had wound the tension so much that people were kind of like, so on the edge of their seat that they were kind of like reacting to things that in my book wasn't something I was expecting reaction from. So that was kind of rewarding and surprising when I would see it in the theater with a festival audience like that and see them like react to something like, oh, <laughs> it was great. I think but what we all makes it worth sure is that the scare was organic to the story and it moved the story forward in the yeah, yeah, there is something very organic about the movie. That's what I was going to say. It's like, there's really very little CGI. I couldn't get my head cut, unfortunately, myself. So they had to use <laughs> CGI. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it, it's a very organic movie. Oh, and it, it, it is very moody. So I think it's really easy to get the audience from the neck and like pull, like jerk it off suddenly. And they're like... <laughs> If it is not, if it is blah, 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 and lots of CGI, then the audience is like, like, okay, bring it on. You know, it's, yeah. so it becomes a challenge when here audience is really like honestly investing in it. It's mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, when you talked about the story arc for your character, you know, because you start off kind of not really meek, but uh, meeker than you do at the end of the movie, but uh, I would think that as an actor, it would be harder to play the middle the middle part of a, an arc of a character because you can't just be like a switch, like you're at this level, then you're on this level, just automatically. You have to, the arc to, for, to, to work in a movie, I think you'd have to progress to that. Yeah, I would definitely credit uh, Brian Lowe with that because I, I have distinct memories of Bri, especially being like, uh, it has to be believable. I, I do a lot of horror, so I'm eager to, like, go crazy. <laughs> like, uh -huh. I want to, like, I'm ready to get, like, intense. So I think um, Brian was definitely on top of me about the pace. Um, 
of like, of taking things incrementally. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, you know, that's what a director does. I need the guidance. Um, uh, cause I show up ready to work and, and, um, and I, and I, I'm, I'm grateful to have good direction, you know, uh, they really paced it out. They were re- similar to my voice. You know, we, um, modified my voice and sometimes when you're in it you can't tell as much and no matter how committed you are and so it's really helpful to have amazing directors that are monitoring everything and on top of everything and we were very diligent about where I was in the in the arc in the story because of course you're shooting out of sequence and they were also very diligent about monitoring my voice and because uh, sometimes if I got emotional or excited, I would kind of lose the correct mm-hmm. cadence, you know. Now, ben, well, we wanted to, to, sorry, go on. No, you go on. Well, I was going to say, it was like we worked with Trista a lot before we started shooting. And uh, thank you, Trista, for, uh, you know, crediting us so much for that. But we were doing a lot of this work with Trista prior to shooting like sitting down and she had her script and she was taking very careful notes in her script. So she had a very good sense of her homework was done where she knew where her character was. So she was able to, uh, you know, reference that a lot on the shoot as well because we had talked it through and she had, you know, kind of learned that as we went. And uh, we just kind of wanted to work with her and Trista was so game on it on kind of creating a little bit of a a different character than uh, Trista had played before. Um, because she does amazing horror work and plays a bunch of different characters in uh, some great horror movies. And we wanted to, like, basically have Trista, but, like, craft this character of Alyssa that would be something a little different than what Trista had been called upon to do before. Uh, and I just think she did an amazing job. We were very happy. Yeah. So I just want to say uh, people are watching this uh, live here, and uh, there's no questions, but a lot of people are saying uh, that they love the movie. Uh, Peggy Small says, much love to Trista. Uh, Bill Whedon says, hello. Uh, brilliant movie. Uh, Alexis uh, from Greece says, greetings from Greece, and they love the movie. Cool. Thank you, guys. Yeah. So what has yeah, the feedback been you. like for uh, Echoes of Fear? Well, the, the feedback starting from the festivals was just amazing. I mean, the first our, our first festival we played was Shriek Fest in L.A., uh, and the very next night, we played Women in Horror on the East Coast, which is crazy. But the first, the first showing was at Shriekfest, uh, the world premiere in L.A. And Trista and I were sitting in the very – Lo was off working, shooting something else, unfortunately. But Trista and I were sitting in the very back of the theater. And we were kind of on pins and needles because we couldn't really necessarily tell in the dark, you know, how it was going over, but at the end, it was like everyone really loved it, and that was great. But some of the other uh, other uh, festival screens we saw, which Lowe got to go to as well, is like you have different audience. You know, they're much more vocal, and when they, when they have a more vocal audience reaction, because some some audiences get really scared and they're kind of like bringing it in like this, and then other audiences are kind of like scared and they're like letting it out like that. So it's like it's it's interesting to see it. Uh, how it plays with the different audiences. But we've had, like, pretty much great feedback from the actual people seeing it in the festivals. And people have watched it on the Blu-ray and VOD. 
And, you know, we've had, you know, overall, like, really, really positive reviews. Yeah. I feel like people have been pleasantly surprised, not really being sure what they're going to be watching. Because there's a lot of indie movies, so, mm-hmm. you know, you never know. You know, you never know what is it going to be. But I think, overall, they're pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Like, they didn't expect the scares. A lot of time, people said, oh, my gosh, I haven't jumped in my sofa in ages. Mm-hmm. You know, it says, oh, my gosh, right? Yeah, when you can get a jaded... Hardcore jaded horror, and that was the biggest thing I felt good about was they were basically had some people come up with horror because you know at a horror festival you get a bunch of different horror type of horror films and there's different horror audiences, mm-hmm. and there were some people who were like, oh you know I don't like ghost haunted yeah. house ghost. I'm, movies. I'm actually one of those they, people. But, I don't I don't really like the haunted still, house movies, but, they but still I really like the, the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when when someone like that who doesn't like that type of movie still likes the movie, then you feel like you you've accomplished something. Uh-huh. And then, I mean, Alif, uh, I mean, it's kind of weird. It's like Alif is, is Turkish, and we've been having a great, you know, overseas release of the movie, and it ended up getting, like, played on 105 screens in Turkey, oh, wow. which I never... In the, in the cineplex. In the cineplex. And I was like, I never would have believed that was, was going to happen. That was kind of surreal. <laughs> and they used the poster where you could really see Alif really well, our festival poster. They basically used that in Turkey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was great. Is, yeah, and it is not a Turkish connection. I mean, I had no idea yeah. they were showing it. <laughs> Actually, Laurence let me know they are showing it Tur- in Turkey. Did you know? I had no idea. So I guess, the, and they didn't those, even know the entity was Turkish. They just right. want. I you wanted know? to show the movie. Yeah. Uh, do horror movies play there a lot? Is, uh, I mean, it's it's. Yes, maybe it is not like the most important movies they show. There's lots of action movies and this and that, but uh, they they show some. Yeah, and for some reason this connected with them. So, what were you saying? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, what's interesting is the um, the Turkish uh, distributor who put the movie out in the theaters actually ended up contacted our rep. And uh, wanted to know if they have more of it because of fear for Turkey, which I thought was interesting that they like, they want more of that. They want more because of fear. <laughs> yeah, our, our, our international distributors, uh, Jinga Films, our international sales agent, and they actually in one of the film markets came to them and said, "So you got anything like uh, Echoes of Fear?" <laughs> which is which is which is kind of cool that someone actually is like, "Oh, that's cool." So I guess uh, the people in Turkey are liking it, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's been like, it's come out in, in Spain and Cambodia and Australia and it's uh, New Zealand and it's coming out in the UK in the fall. And the Netherlands actually is coming out in June. So it's, it's, it's been really yeah. gratifying to see how, and maybe it's because you work so hard to make it so visual, but it's been translating really well on the overseas market, which is great. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Benedict, you said that when Brian sends you the movie, there's, so there's no score involved. Um, but does he have any input, or does he just let you like see the movie and, and come up with your own thing? Uh, at the beginning, I think I, we just talk, you know, I know what he kind of likes a little mm-hmm. bit, but then we try to find the tone of the picture, right? And it's different, you know, than the other movies he's done. So uh, I would do a little, I would find a clip that I like, or I would start in the middle, or I don't even remember this movie. I pick a scene usually that attracts me. And I would just try to get a tone. Get, and I send a couple of versions over to Brian. So sometimes I try a dark, super dark, 
medium dark. It's like coffee, right? I do a, a light roast, medium, and a very dark. <laughs> and 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 then I'm a dark roast guy, by the way. Right. And then Brian will listen back and say, "Oh, I like that direction. This might be a good thing. What we're looking for." And then you know, I'm gonna keep developing that. So it's like with the actor, right? He gives me also some input, of course. But he, would, he wouldn't really tell me, you know, I don't like the clarinet doing something. Unless if it's such an instrument <laughs> that is clarinet. bizarre. I, there was one thing I put in a, a whatever sound effect. And he said, that sounds like a lightsaber. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that triggers something in his mind, like being from a sci-fi movie. And I get this. You know, uh -huh. when you hear a certain song, a certain harmony, you might think, oh, that's my summer bag in the Hamptons or wherever you had your summer, right? So... So yeah, we work together. And then I do more different versions. And usually if I have the right direction, he leaves me alone, I do my thing. So, mm -hmm. but well, comments are always welcome and they're very good. I, I do want to say, and Benedict, you, if you want to talk about this, I think one of the biggest challenges you had in scoring it was the same way that the movie kind of goes through a big turn, a big build and turn into the third act. The music had to also marry that turn so if you want to talk a little bit about that, because it's quite interesting how you change the music. Yes. Uh, so we don't want to give away the story, right? If people haven't really... Oh, you, I think you, we you, probably you gave can, away a lot already. But you yeah. can. Point, oh, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, you can. Yeah, like pretty much halfway through, we figure out there's stuff going on and we've seen this getting really dark and serious, you know. And so musically, something had to happen. We couldn't just keep going. So what I did, I completely did a, like 180. So at the beginning, it's more... Uh, uh, I would say live instruments, a little more, more strings, more eerie sounds and stuff. And then I go really uh, brutal. I mean, there's stuff I've never written in other scores. I mean, if, if you listen without the movie, you're going to get, uh, you're going to drive against the wall. I mean, this is very uh, relentless. I think one review has said relentless scoring and it's very intense. It's so intense. It's like 20 minutes of pounding it and getting more intense all the way to the end, right? So it's, it's, I think it drove everybody crazy, uh, you know, but the end result, you know, I, if you don't hate it, I think it's effective. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but it, but, it, but it fits the picture, so it works. It does, it does, it, it works so well. And even I had to go through some hoops to say, I don't, I'm not that guy who writes those gnarly, low-end synths, whatever things I did there. But you know what? It just adds to that tension to the drama to the story arc and that's what my job is too so i guess in the end it all worked out yeah are you a horror movie fan i am i'm not too much into the slasher movies you know when i know oh people are gonna get killed then yeah, it can be entertaining but you know what when i was like 10 i sneaked into alien number one that scared the heck out of me when i was very young seeing that in germany and the biggest thing that scared me most are those psychological horror movies i think Eraserhead scared me the most and there's not even a single moment of music in that movie David Lynch, right? Yeah. Phenomenal. So now I love, I, I love him occasionally with other movies, but I love Japanese uh, slow boiled horror, right? When that, mm -hmm. that's a different kind of vibe. Dario Argento is amazing. So I'm, I'm a fan also, but I like drama. I like other stuff as well. So. Yeah. How does someone actually uh, become, how do you get involved in like scoring movies? Like, I, I don't know like how, how that comes about. You know what? I think you're, I'm a musician. I play violin, you know, uh, since I'm six years old. So I love, I love music and I love cinema. So I've heard the big scores, John Williams, you know, when Star Wars, when you're 15, I mean, stuff like that, right? So, but at one point, I think back home in Germany, a friend of mine said, I'm doing a little short movie and I don't have any music and you're a musician, can you do something? And I also compose. I just like noodling on the piano, making up stuff. And I just said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to try. So that's how I slipped in. I started writing customized music for friends. 
Mm-hmm. And then I studied here in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California with Elmer Bernstein and, and those guys, Bruce Broughton, Chris Young, and got more into the feature films and, and stuff. But I just love writing music. And it's like writing an opera. You have a plot, right? You have a great storyline and you write something that goes with the story. It's just now full of the picture, for you know, which I think is fascinating. If it works, music and, and uh, motion pictures together is a great combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So uh, Trista, when you're uh, working with Alif and like uh, when she's kind of doing the, I almost said Vulcan mind mill, but when she's like, uh, uh, you know, get like uh, how do you come up with like uh, what, what, how you're going to act in those scenes? You know, when you're not possessed, but you know, so, something's entering your mind. Right. So I'm pretty diligent. I'm hyper prepared for everything. But for those, I really, uh, I have to say, I, I don't think I was. That was all pretty visceral. Yeah, because it's all physical, it's all emotional. I'm not, those scenes, I think we filmed them all at one time, and I don't think, it was really just her holding me, and I'm looking at the camera, and I'm going through a little journey, but I, I'm not, and obviously I'm seeing stuff, but but the way that we filmed it was that way. But I wasn't, um, I don't have an arc the way I do with, like, the script that I, I guess what I'm saying is that was just very vis- visceral and off the cuff and quick and it felt very raw and organic and um, I, I, I love playing off a leaf it's so it comes very naturally to me and I don't have to do very much and um, I, I feel like that's the right way to go I'm not forcing anything it's so um, I second what Brian said. I've seen Alif on stage. If you can see her, go see her. She's an amazing performer. It makes my job so easy. Yeah. Where can you, where can you see you, Alif? Where, where do you perform? Uh, I do lots of performances at Zombie Joe's Underground Theater. It's a very famous theater in Los Angeles. It's a tiny theater. It's a black box, but it's like a raw, real theater. I do lots of stuff with them, and uh, I work in an immersive theater space that is called uh, the, the Count's Den. It's in downtown LA, and uh, I am the I am the mother superior vampire of that space. We do lots of shows there, and um, and uh, I I I do other kind of theater too, and. Um, <coughs> Um, I do some like normal normal theater when I'm not scaring the shit out of people (laughs) so I don't know follow me on Instagram or something I'll let you know but I have to say one thing about working with Brian and Laurence I've worked on many sets and many plays and many live theater and what I learned from them is you do not need to be stressed out and pushed around to do an amazing, stressful acting. They are a pleasure to work with. They are really uh, professional. They are very sweet to each other all the time, So, which, which is hard. They're a husband and wife. Can you imagine working together all the time in a tiny budget movie that they have been working, pushing it through for years? basically and uh it's they are really nurturing and uh they are very particular 
They don't let you go away with things that you choose. They want what they want, but they don't push you to a frustration. They are really amazing to work with. I don't know how they do it. Uh, I, I would Thank be you. like, fucking bubble. I would start going crazy <laughs> on actors. They are, it goes like hours of hours of shooting under really stressful conditions. Husband and wife constantly being nice to each other and nice to everyone, taking care of everyone, cooking, like, food for you it's mm -hmm. i don't know how they do it but that shows that it is possible to have a working environment that's not poisonous mm -hmm. you know so i have to say that yeah. well, thanks Denise. thank you thanks <laughs> now uh, lawrence do you always uh co-direct with brian uh, on your other movies how, well, how does it work well no i we started on this movie usually um well, it started where I just wanted to bring Brian's vision on, on the screen, you know, with the cinematography and, uh, you know, the, the camera and the lighting. And then little by little, um, I got more involved in story. And then on this one, at first, actually, I wasn't going to co-direct originally. And, um, but I, I got so involved then com compared to usual. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we would make our decisions together on how we're going to, story-wise, how we're going to do the movie. And usually, even during the shoot, the way, the way we work together is that Brian is the voice most of the time, unless he, he wants me to talk to the actors, but usually he's the voice. And then the, before the shoot, we kind of like together decides on how we're going to approach the characters and how we're going to work the story, how we're gonna, how we're gonna make it work, really. It's just very, very collaborative. I mean, the thing is, we, we've always been really collaborative in all the movies. It's just, made, you know, in the beginning, like she said, it was like, I was a little bit more like, we're doing this, and then Lois putting in all this input from the beginning, but every movie, she started doing more and more input, and every movie got better and better, but the more input that she was putting into it. So, I mean, I think when we, when we did this one, we knew right from the beginning you were going to be really involved. We didn't know that you were going to be officially a co-director, but yeah. eventually at a certain point as we're developing the movie, I'm like, well, you should be have the title because you're doing it. You know, lots of times you would just take the producer title and cinematographer title, but at a certain point it's like, well, wait, but you're really co-directing. What you're doing is way beyond what a normal cinematographer would do. So it's like, it, it's, it wouldn't be fair to her not to credit her with that. Yeah. And, it was for me, it was like, I think Echoes of Fear is by far our best movie. I attribute that a lot to Lowe. And, you know, we're working on developing other things. And uh, now she's even more involved in the initial story uh, right from the get go. I mean, initially I would do like a draft and kind of let her read it and give notes. And, but now she's like, we're just even in the very beginning of figuring out what story we're going to tell, what's the story. And it's been, it's really nice. Yeah. I mean, even like, even when we were um, talking about the music, usually Brian would be like, okay, we got Benedict's music. And then I'd listen to it and I'd be giving my, my notes, you know, I'd give my notes to Brian and then Brian is the one who's like talking to, communicating. Because I felt like it's better to have like one voice with a person rather than like, oh no, I want to I do this. So no, and this. So we kind of like, he knows if I don't, likes it for shooting he knows if i if i don't like something or i feel like something should be done a little different 
and um, you can tell. But it's also nice because he's officially, you know, in this film, officially co-director. I mean, lots of times when she's shooting an actor, especially in these crawl spaces, in these tight environments, the real locations, they look bigger than they are because she's using a wide-angle lens, but it's really cramped. Uh, and, I mean, she'll just communicate directly with the actor in those circumstances. Because it's like there's no reason for her not to just directly communicate, like, I need you a little over here, a little over there. Say you're lying two steps forward, do this, because it helps with the mechanics and making it work with the shot. This is much more efficient and easier for her to have that direct communication without, like, going through some, you know, it's just better. And we're very collaborative yeah. set. We just kind of like, uh, when, when we when we really just do everything together. I mean, we can tell if, you know, and if we don't want to upset, because one of our thing is we like to keep the set really smooth in terms of like not upsetting actors or make get them out of their character. We want them to feel like they can still be in character. So we, we try really hard if we, if we have different opinions, we, we kind of subtly tell each other so right yeah but most but it really happens but most of that we worked out we already, yeah we usually pre- it's, it's yeah, we i mean look there were, there were there there's like a joke i used to give is like i'll give a script and uh, that wasn't echoes of fear of the script but i've given scripts in the past and the, and the first note pass from low was like giant red lines on pages <laughs> boring so it's just like you know what's great is if you can get if you can get past low in the scripting department. <laughs> well, I mean, you've my, really accomplished something. My view in it is I don't want to put my ideas into someone's script if they're, if they're just asking for an opinion. So I don't want to be like, no, I'm going to tell you what your script should be. I don't want to do that. So I'd rather just be more general and be like, that's not working. Or And then you 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 think about what would make it work. <laughs> this is not true. And, and, it, it echoes the fear. It echoes the fear. She was so involved in the story. Uh, I mean, I actually wanted her to take a story credit, and she wouldn't do it. And next time, she's got to be taking the story credit. She's not getting away with not taking it. Because she added so many story elements, since we're not worrying about spoilers. I mean, basically, the, the paintings on the wall is low. The nail clippings in the case is low. The mouse is low. The basement and the rock tunnel connecting to the basement is low. I mean, so basically, I had a script without any of those things, and I can't even imagine Echoes of Fear without those things in it now. It'd be inconceivable. So, uh, so you, know. you, you said you said real location. So is that your real uh, tunnel that you have underground? Yes. <laughs> well, I spent like a whole year digging and digging <laughs> the, the hill. Wow, more credit. <laughs> no, that that was. Don't tell our neighbor. No, that, that, that was our conceit. The rock tunnel was our conceit. Like everything else we did mm-hmm. was basically really all these crawl, crazy crawl spaces that you would never believe could exist in this house are all real. The rock tunnel connecting the two houses was something that Loa had developed and came up with because she basically, and she was absolutely right. She's basically like, we got to get out of the house now. We're moving in the third act. We're, we're changing the tone of the movie. We're going somewhere else. So we're going to move out. So she like, First of all, she threw two things in the mix that as a producer, when she gave me the assignment to write this, she gave me a giant list of things I couldn't do as a producer. And so I finished the script and she's like, starts adding all these things that are violating the producing rules that she gave me. Because I'm like, well, where's this rock tunnel? We can't afford to buy this set. We're, we're, where's the basement? We're in California. You know how hard it is to get a basement in California? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not an easy location to get. 
um, especially with the budget that we were working with. Um, but, you know, but she was right from a story perspective. That's absolutely what we needed in the basement. We got at the 11th hour to a week before shooting. It was from our realtor who actually found this house for us, or you found the house, but she got us the house that we're in that inspired this whole movie. She allowed us to shoot in her basement. So how's that for a realtor? That's a real, that's a real realtor right there. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. How about the mouse itself? Was it, was that hard to get the mouse to, to run down the steps? And Well, yeah, I mean, that was like a little challenge is uh, the, I mean, you wanted the mouse and we had to train the mouse, uh, but we know we have two mice in the movie um, because the first one died. They don't live very long, unfortunately. And our movie took a little, you know, some time. Um, so, but the good thing is, each mouse had, had a different skill. So like one mouse was really good at the wheel. One mouse was really good at following a path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the, the, the cute, the cute, I really wanted that. And Brian was like, uh, I really wanted to see the mouse go down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And then Brian says, no, we can't do it. I'm like, Yes, we're going to have to find a way to do it. <laughs> so we ended up um, building a little ramp. And then when we tested, because the first time I put the mouse on the thing and it was too narrow and she was scared. So I was like, okay, that's not going to work. So we put a thicker ramp and that didn't work because she was sliding and she was getting scared. So I was like, okay, we can't do that. And so Brian came up with the idea of like um, put glue and sand to create traction and uh, so then when it was, you know, it's like a anti-slippery mm-hmm. material, right? So, and then she was cool. She could just go down, you know. So then we had to, we had to marry that into the actual staircase uh, so to make the lip a little longer. So she's talking about with the, with the slope, we basically added a quarter of an inch. But then we had to do it on the other side of the staircase so it matched. Mm-hmm. And it's still there on the staircase. It's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's never <laughs> going away. Right. So we have this additional trim on the staircase. It's, you know, not that we're going to get any more mice to, to run down. But they're cute, though. I like them. Yeah. And then, of course, over time, to the, you know. they're very smart. They're very smart, right? Yeah. They are and now smart. we have a kitty cat. And before we did have a cat, but he was old and he didn't mind. Uh, but on new cats, uh, that, that would be too stressful for the yeah. mouse. I yeah. don't want to stress the mouse. And, and honestly, I can't deal I can't deal with the, these mice actors because you, 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 you put them in a movie, but then you have to take care of them the rest of their life. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, so they have a little part and they basically have this automatic, uh, you know, it's better than a SAG retirement plan. It's like, I play you a part for a couple of weeks and then you have to take care of me the rest of my life and give me a giant house and feed me every day. So Trista, we missed on that. Let's go back. Let's go back. Knock their door. <laughs> They're going to get the mice deal. Go, right. I want Laurence's lunches and dinners. I'm going back. Let's go, Trista. On the next one. <laughs> well, Turkey is wanting more. Lo, Lo and I, I mean, Lo and I enjoyed working with this team and, and the rest of the people so much, but this team is really special to us that's on this call right now. And uh, I mean, we, we hope to be able to do more movies in the future and we certainly hope to continue this collaboration because it's really great when you can make a movie with a collaborative team where everyone is like 
not just focus on themselves and their role, but they want to make the movie the best they can be. Trista's performance, Elise's performance, Benedict, what he does with the music, he's very selfless. He, he wants to do what's best for the movie. As opposed, I mean, he never like tries to force something on there that's not appropriate for the film. In this uh, Leafs and Trista's performance, it's like everyone's trying to serve the story in the movie, and it's really a great experience when you yeah. have a team like that. Because yeah. filmmaking is a team. Yeah. Filmmaking is a very much a team thing. I mean, we're directors and writer and editor, and you did the color, and we did. Some, I mean, we did a bunch of roles, but it's still you need all these other people and all this other collaboration to make a movie. It's one of the reasons that I think it's the most exciting, one of the most exciting art forms there is because it requires all the disciplines, all the artistic disciplines are in film, all of them, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I love Echoes of Fear, not just because you guys are here, but uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Yo, what are you gonna say, Neil? What are you gonna say? <laughs> which honestly though, when I, cause I met Brian before I saw the movie and Brian was really cool. And at, when I'm at festivals, that's good, but it's also like, well, I really hope I like their movie now because <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I, you know, it's, I, I can't just say oh, I was terrible. And I also don't want to lie and say, you know, that was oh, great. Yeah. But, so it worked out good because I like Brian and I like the movie. And then I liked everyone involved in the movie afterwards. So, <laughs> so, so if you practice how to do in this situation, you go, you go like, wow, man, that was a movie. That was <laughs> up there on the screen. And people well, saw it. People who, people who listen to the show a lot have told me, like, they could tell if I really like a movie because I do say a lot, like, I like, and not just because you're here. And so I probably shouldn't say that because I guess if I don't <laughs> say that, maybe it gives away that maybe I didn't. Yeah, you're, you're going to give away your tricks. You're giving right. away your tricks. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, where can you see Echoes of Fear? You can see it's on video demand, DVD, Blu-ray. Yeah, well, in, in, in North America, uh, you can see it on video demand, uh, like all the places you watch movies at, you know, your Google Plays and Amazons and iTunes and all that, and cables and direct TVs and that kind of thing. Uh, the Blu-ray, which we're really excited about, which actually it's out there at a good price in a bunch of places. Yeah. Um, and it's got, it's got 50... Uh, five-minute extra Echoes in the Dark, which is all original content. And it's got another 20 minutes of extra behind-the-scenes stuff as well, uh, besides Echoes in the Dark. So it's, it's like a fun Blu-ray to get because it's got a lot of supplemental extra material on it. Uh, but if you're not into Blu-rays, but some people aren't into discs anymore, definitely uh, you can stream it, get it that way. Even though we were asked for a VHS. Someone asked us for a VHS. Lo made a a mock-up of a VHS. Oh, she made a, I love it. She made a VHS planner. It's actually, it's actually like a daily planner, but she made it like a, a VHS box. Yeah. yeah. I have some VHS so, things here. But, uh, <laughs> but no, we do not have, uh, we do not have a VHS version. So, and honestly, in all honesty, uh, I, I really miss the days of going into video stores. I yeah. love browsing the shelves. I miss those days completely, but I never, ever ever like the vhs format because uh -huh. it looks horrible i'm sorry uh -huh. i know that there's a whole vhs retro thing going on right now but it's it's not vinyl people it's vhs it's not vinyl so <laughs> stop stop it stop it it's not a good quality way to see a movie right I or hear a score or hear music that's <laughs> that's right definitely yeah. oh my gosh yeah hear the score on vhs <laughs> can be pretty uh <laughs> yeah but that's what makes it fun for some people. And, of course, overseas and other territories, you know, check it out. 
uh, you know, see if it's in your country. I think we're like in 10 countries right now overseas or coming out in 10 uh, that haven't, some haven't come out yet. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of ways to see it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, uh, where can you follow Lo and Brian? Online, not like well, your house. We're, we're, we are the, we are the only Avenue hyphen Bradley's. We're the only Avenue Bradley's on the planet. So if you basically Google Avenue Bradley uh, or look for us on Facebook, Avenue Bradley or Instagram, Avenue Bradley, you're basically going to come with us because we're the only two in the world. So, <laughs> yay! Uh, but you can do Facebook, Instagram. Or yeah, Facebook, Instagram. Stuff like I have a Twitter. I don't go on Twitter as much, but Facebook and Instagram is a great way to connect. If you have any questions, we're always happy to uh, And even answer. on our website, we have an email. And we can answer any questions. Yeah. And the website's very simple. It's just echoesoffear.com. So it's just the name of the movie.com. So it's, it's easy to find. Alif, how can people follow you see what you're up to? Uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook, and it is my name, E-L-I-F-S-A-V-A-S. Or you can find my name on the movie and uh, you can follow. I have some shows coming up, some stuff coming up and um, they're pretty cool. cool. Next time I'm in LA, <laughs> I would like to uh, check that out. Sure, sure. We should. Yeah. We have some Zoom performances you're doing right now, don't you, Leave Zoom performances coming up. The date, I don't know. It's in June and it is a monologue that I wrote and Zombie actually directed it. Oh, great. It's a 10-minute monologue. Uh, it's quite interesting. So if you follow cool. me, you'll see what yeah. I'm doing. Right. Uh, Trista, how can people follow you? I'm Trista Robinson, and I am on Facebook and Twitter, and I post updates of my work on there. Yeah. And Benedict. Uh, you know, it's easy. I've got a lot of CDs out, soundtracks, oh, my cool. own work, right? Uh, and Google my name, Benedict Bryden, on all the major platforms, Instagram, you know, Facebook, my own website, consoldino.com. So, yeah, here we are. <laughs> Very good. Well, I appreciate all of you guys doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having such a good mix. I mean, this is a, a great mix because there's a lot of different disciplines uh, yeah. all together, which has been fun. We've never had this group together before, so thanks for making that happen. And we've never got to talk about the movie before and not worry about spoilers. So mm-hmm. this is a, thank you for putting this together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a Q&A with you at a, at a, uh, at a, at a festival, and you kept, you kept stopping, and you would look at me and, like, edit this part out. <laughs> edit this part out. Yeah. Which was funny well, to me. I don't know what the, the rest of the was, audience thought, but it was funny to me. Yeah, yeah. The, the well, I still gave the answer. I trust. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah. I mean, that's the tricky part when you're. I mean, you're doing festivals sometimes a year before it comes out. So mm-hmm. it's like you don't want like everything out there. You know, you want to kind of protect the movie, especially Echoes, because it has a lot of different journeys and twists yeah. and turns that it does, and you want people to be able to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is great for the festivals because no one knew anything. So that was great. Yeah, I mean, that's the best way to go into a movie, I think. I know it's not yes. always possible or anything, but yeah, because I, I didn't know much about it besides the poster, and I thought the poster was cool. Cool. Yeah, which oh, I cool. took a picture All right. with. All right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I got to go because I'm doing another interview, but this was awesome. What? I appreciate everyone what? doing it. <laughs> Thank you. Bill Moser will get you. mad if I'm late. All right. But thanks, oh. everyone. I really appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank Bye. And thanks everyone who watched this on Facebook. Thanks. Bye. Bye.